You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, episode 172. I'm David Grubbs. I'll be your host this week. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it looking there, Nathan? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm off of that uh, fall break that I mentioned at our Back to the Future episode. Uh, so I'm actually in the office getting a little bit of rest after that grueling fall break. <laughs> yeah, breaks always end up. You, you need a break for the break. Yeah, if you got young kids at home, that's doubly the case. Yep. <laughs> well, also with us is Danny Anderson, assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, there's there's not a question mark on that name in the map, dear <laughs> listeners. That was just, that was just me making sure I got it right. Excellent. How are you? How are you? How are you today, Danny? I'm doing better than some, and not as well as others, I suppose. Uh, no, I'm I'm doing really well. I was uh, I was sick uh, last week, but I'm feeling much better today. Had a good conversation with my students about some poetry, so I feel the adrenaline pumping still. So there, nothing makes my day better than leaving a class feeling like I nailed it with something literary. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. It actually. Last week, I actually convinced myself I wasn't sick. I had a good day, and so and it turned out I had 102 fever, but it didn't hit me until I was out of class. So, <laughs> so, so your sense of well-being was just kind of itself a fever dream? It was a warp, yeah. yeah. So. Awesome. Well, before we get into our topic, which uh, we're going to be having a conversation about Roman Catholic higher education today, um, before we get into that, what else is going on in the Christian Humanist Radio Network that we need to be paying attention to or looking out for? Well, we've got a string of profiles interviews coming at you. Uh, lots of good names there. I'm not going to rattle all those off right now. Just keep just subscribe to Christian Humanist Profiles and then you'll see. So quit <laughs> bothering me. Uh, we've also got a new episode of Book of Nature coming soon. Uh, as well as a new Christian feminist podcast, so mm -hmm. the podcasts are rolling. If you haven't subscribed to Sectarian Review yet, uh, I actually got a chance to listen to episode number two since last we recorded, and it was a fun conversation, so subscribe to that one as well. Subscribe to all of them! <laughs> yes. <laughs> look for another Sectarian Review very soon. Uh, I want to get one out before Halloween. We're doing something about uh, the ethical function of horror. And so Righteous. Yes. Very cool. And there's uh, also a relatively new one that's that's out as well, dear listeners, on voice, which uh, mm -hmm. which looks very interesting. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. I think it would also be nice to note that today is Chris Gertz's birthday. I know you'll be a week late once you hear this, dear listeners, but 
uh, nonetheless, he is a human, and he has a birthday like the rest of us. So, you know, happy birthday to Chris. <laughs> he's, he's dang near like a Roman emperor that way. <laughs> yes, and Chris Garretts <laughs> is the uh, the host of our Pietist Schoolman. Uh, I'm I'm calling it a podcast anthology because it has such a uh, such a, a a cohesive unity to it. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, with that news from the network, let's shift to our topic. We're talking about. Uh, Roman Catholic higher education, as I said, um, one, well, multiple reasons for doing this. We now have uh, a host on this show who's who's working for a Roman Catholic college. Uh, also, we got an email a while back saying we don't talk about Catholic things enough, and that rankled. So, it, here we go. So now you're going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're talking about papists. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Going to be dwelling mainly in book three of the Institutes. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the, 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 the Westminster Confession and the, yeah. London, the London Baptist Confession and some of the nastier things. And anyway, no, no. Whatever. No, no, no. Um, we're talking about Catholic higher education and its its contribution to higher ed and Christian higher ed in particular. But I'll let Nathan do the, uh, I guess, historical roots for us first. Right, and I will attempt to hold myself to the high points here. In the <laughs> early centuries of the Christian church, there are no universities because no one had thought to invent them yet. Christians traveled to Athens to learn philosophy. They learned oratory from... Uh, rhetoricians. Uh, they got the same sort of education that other people did, and you did have some people, uh, notably, you know, Clement of Alexandria, uh, writing about the role of Greek philosophy in a Christian uh, education. Origin of Alexandria before him was, you know, quite heavily influenced by Platonist thinking. Really, with Saint Augustine, you get some of the earliest systematic thinking on education for Christians in his treatise on Christian teaching, or De Doctrina Christiana. Mm -hmm. His most famous image from that, and it's one that I use frequently when I talk to students and colleagues about what Christian education does, is he uses the story from early in the book of Exodus, uh, when the people of Israel were leaving Israel and starting to head out into the wilderness. You Egypt. have a brief aside that says that they took the gold and the valuable things from their neighbors. Now, uh, different interpreters render that differently. Some rendered it as, you know, a sort of neighborly going away gift. The, the more predominant tradition calls it the plunder of the Egyptians. Uh, but at any rate, Augustine takes that image from Exodus and says that, like the Hebrews leaving Egypt, we should plunder the best intellectual treasures of all of the cultures that we convert people out of, which is to say all of the nations of all of the world. And for that reason, uh, Ciceronian rhetoric, Platonic philosophy, uh, Thucydides' history, all of these things that represented learning in the day of St. Augustine was fair game for Christians so long as it was deployed for the sake of the kingdom. Mm. Centuries later, and like I said, I'm trying to, hit, trying to confine myself to the high points, you have the establishment of monastery schools and the monks who were trained in Latin reading and writing became servants of royal courts. 
they established educational systems in the court of Charlemagne, in the, in the court of King Alfred of England. And that strong relationship between monastery and royal court defined what we've come to call liberal education for several centuries until you get to somewhere in, and it's hard to say when these things started, somewhere in the 10th and 11th centuries, I'm just going to give it a big, broad, 200-year ballpark of a start, <laughs> you have teachers, uh, presumably whose roots are in these monastic courtly schools, who decide that they are going to form guilds, not unlike the merchants' guilds, uh, not unlike the workmen's guilds, uh, but instead of building things or selling things, they were going to read together. They were going to read books together, and they were also going to read their own lectures to students who could pay the fees to hear them. Because they were reading together, uh, legare in Latin is the infinitive to read, uh, they became the collegio, or the college. And so, in those colleges, uh, you have... Like I said, something analogous to a medieval guild. So hmm. they are certainly related to the church, but they're not identical with the church. They certainly bear a relationship to the throne, but they're not simply an agency of the throne. They are a sort of middle place in society between throne and people, between church and people, where teaching and learning happen. Uh, these are the roots of what we postmoderns call academic freedom. Uh, again, it wasn't the idea that you know, they weren't involved in each other's lives, the church and the throne and the college, but rather the college was itself a territory. Uh, the people within that territory governed that territory, and while they certainly had to live with the church and the throne, uh, they were not directly reporting to either one. In that era, you get the foundation of the famous universities of Europe, Bologna in Italy, with its famous law faculty, Oxford in England. Great theologians come from there. Paris, of course, uh, where eventually we get such figures as Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas. And this is, you know, in some ways, you know, one of the great moments for the university because you have people not only teaching the next generation of thinkers to receive an intellectual tradition, but you have genuinely innovative speculative work and borrowing for a, for a moment from uh, Johannes Fried's book, The Middle Ages, lovely title, uh, which I reviewed for thechristianhumanist.org several months ago, uh, you genuinely get, and this is something I didn't know until I, I read all of the documents he cited, and I said, yeah, I mean, it's there. You genuinely get a culture of intellectual speculation even beyond the traditionalism. And this is important because you have an influx from Eastern Europe and from the, the, well, what's going to become the Ottoman Empire when the Byzantine Empire falls, an influx of Arabic and Greek scholars uh, who are bringing knowledge that Western Europe, to a large extent, you know, sort of hid in its cloisters uh, during the era of the great, you know, Frankish and Hun and various Northern European warlords. So... Gosh, I'm, try I'm trying to hustle here, but I realize I'm talking way too much. Um, <laughs> another couple important events, and then I'm probably going to lateral to Danny and David. Uh, when you get to the era of the Reformations, uh, Luther, Calvin, the Church of England, the Anabaptists, for the first time you get institutions that are de dedicated 
specifically to the training of Roman Catholic priests. Uh, these are the first uh, theological seminaries. They exist separate from the colleges and universities, and they are mandated by the Council of Trent specifically to combat Protestantism. You also get in the same era the foundation of the Order of Jesus, or the Jesuits, who are also great founders of schools, and a lot of the schools we're going to be talking about later are going to be Jesuit colleges. So within the Roman Catholic tradition as distinct from Protestantism, it really is the intellectual explosion that happens with Luther, Calvin, the Protestant scholastics, the Scots academies of the 17th century. The Catholic Church matches them pace for pace, and that's why we've got such a wonderful culture of Catholic colleges even before Cardinal Newman. Now, Cardinal Henry Newman, in 1852, publishes a book simply called The Idea of a University, in which he is making a case that Dublin needs to have not necessarily another seminary, but actually a university whose entire curriculum is informed by the Roman Catholic faith, including a robust Catholic theology, a Catholic philosophy, and certain cultural expectations of those who are matriculating there. Now, all of that brings us up to 1852. I do want to point out, though, that in North America uh, and around the world, but I'm more familiar with the North American institutions, you do have the foundation of Catholic universities like Notre Dame, like Xavier University, like uh, St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, like some of the Loyola universities, but not others of the Loyola universities. That gets confusing. Uh, before Henry Newman writes his book, that said, his book seems to have a very significant influence on the way that those institutions imagine themselves after that. Now, since most of the podcast is going to deal with the most recent 160 years or so, in other words, since Cardinal Henry Newman, I'm going to tail off there. Uh, Danny, I mean, if you want to lateral it to David, that's fine, because I know you didn't prep the history, but is there anything you would add to that very quick history? That was very impressive, and I, I one of the things when this was po posed as the topic of today's show... I, I'm. I feel like an immense kind of pressure <laughs> about uh, getting all of this right. And, and one of the things that, just in general, uh, that kind of make me uncomfortable about this conversation is that I am not like a medievalist, and not having that um, mm. long view of, of you know the context for which education takes in which education takes place. Um, I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of something. For me, this is something that just comes fully formed and accepted. And mm -hmm. to hear the way that you um, trace out a lot of the origins and the social kind of forces and political forces that actually created the, the university over this vast amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, a thousand really, years. Yeah. <laughs> it's really useful for me to understand um, a lot about the contemporary university escape. So just listening to you for the last uh, couple minutes has just been um, fascinating. And um, I, I obviously don't have as much to add to um, the historical scope that you uh, laid out, but I do um, think that it's interesting. The I, I feel like the early, uh, from what I understand, and I, again, as much more philosophy-minded and, and literate than I am, but um, I do understand that the early church 
uh, with you know Thomas Aquinas uh, took a great deal of inspiration from Aristotle, and, and I feel like um, Aristotelian approaches to um, education and learning in general mm-hmm. uh, are sort of uh, implied in a lot of the ways, uh, a lot of the uh, things that you've been talking about, but a lot of the practices in contemporary Catholic education even today. Mm-hmm. And, and, By the way, Danny, I'm just going to mention that you just gave uh, David a twitch when you called Thomas Aquinas part of the early church. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. You know what I mean. Uh, you know. The earlier than us church. This is a 21st century guy talking here, so it's pretty for me. So, but it's all relative, though. Uh, exactly, so. like like the rest of time. Exactly. Um, and so, yes, no, and, and with that, I mean, that's something that. I, I hope to learn more about from you guys as this podcast goes on, mm-hmm. but uh, it is a, a topic that's interesting to me, and, and so and I, I'll use that to ladder on to David. And, and David, I, I obviously just skipped a stone across a millennium, so what <laughs> what ripples would you add? Um, well, one of the reasons why I chose this topic is because I'm a medievalist, and I stopped paying attention to basically everything in the world right about the time your narrative stopped. Oh. <laughs> um, so bringing things up into the current conversation, you know, uh, where you know what things are like where Danny is boots on the ground is interesting to me, um, because that's not a narrative that I've lived, right? I, you know, I came up through um, very intentionally Protestant evangelical Christian colleges, mm-hmm. so that um, I, I, I haven't lived the now of the narrative that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, um, I can make a reading recommendation, uh, still working through it myself, but, uh, Alistair McIntyre, um, <laughs> bingo, <yeah>. bingo, <laughs> um, dadgummit, oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, you guys, um, this is, uh, this is an older book, 2011, it's called, uh, God Philosophy Universities, A Selective History of the Catholic Philosophical Tradition. Oh, fun. And essentially what McIntyre is doing is um, giving uh, – retread isn't fair, but it's, it's, it's – f- functionally he's attempting to bring – to, to sort of reapply and update a, a kind of Cardinal Newman approach to the university education. Okay. And, and so the things that, that the things in the university that he decries are this um, ever more uh, ever greater specialization, leaving leaving ever smaller and smaller, you know, numbers of academics actually asking larger, you know, important human questions, um, and and even within philosophy how uh, the the specializations within philosophy gradually steering the conversations away from the big questions of what is the human, what ought we to be, you know, things like that. Um, You know, dithering for centuries in prolegomena before you can get to the big question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry, philosophers, but, you know, that that is what he says in the book, and he doesn't (laughs) You know, he doesn't want to entirely trash philosophy, but he does want us to get on to answering big questions in spite of not having sufficiently, you know, gone through the prolegomena. Anyway, all that to say this, um, Alistair McIntyre's writing, you know, four or five years ago, 
this text and is essentially doing an intellectual history um, that begins um, where you began, Nathan, and carries it past Newman and on to the present age, mm-hmm. but is still very much in the um, in the vein of Newman's vision of a university in which the disciplines do fit, fit together because there is a kind of unifying um, view of reality that values the human and values knowledge because of that that kind of universal um, perspective. Anyway, um, I, I, I recommend it. Uh, in fact, it was a, a book that uh, a faculty reading group on campus uh, here at HBU went through. So mm-hmm. we're not, we might not be plundering Egyptians, but we are plundering Romans. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was funnier than apparently it was. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I guess getting to the now. Uh, you teach, Danny, you teach at Mount Aloysius College, which is a Roman Catholic college, and I know that you can get much more specific than that. So can you describe the contemporary scene or where you're situated in the contemporary scene for us and the ways that it's, I guess, like or unlike medieval Oxford or Cardinal Newman's big idea? Yeah, I could try. Uh, and again, this is another p- a point at which I, I feel a bit of pressure because, you know, I am fairly new here as well as new to the kind of Catholic tradition as well. And so uh, I'm going to try and not misspeak. And so if I'm more cautious than normal, that's that's why. Um, but uh, this is a Sisters of Mercy school. And so the okay. Sisters of Mercy are an Irish. Um, they are not uh, departed or gone. No, <laughs> no. Sorry, I can't help myself, Danny. I really can't. I, <laughs> it's okay. Every time you say that, I think of Leonard Cohen. I, yeah. <laughs> this makes me very happy, actually. That that too, so. Um, so no, uh, the Sisters of Mercy are uh, founded in Dublin by uh, by a lady named Catherine Macaulay, who uh, was not initially a nun. She was a, a very devout Catholic, mm-hmm. and she found herself inheriting a, a great deal of money. Uh, from a, a family that that loved her and basically and so she wanted to do something uh, for the church with this money and, and she had it in her heart to sort of take care of of the women in Irish society that were being ignored and kind of marginalized and so she founded a home in uh, in in Dublin and that home began to sort of um, feel suspiciously like a convent <laughs> and basically and so under some some encouragement from the the, the, the local Catholic Church uh, emissaries uh, she actually took vows and created an order the Sisters of Mercy um, to kind of bring what she was doing so it wasn't I guess cultish I guess um, and to bring it within the confines of, of Catholic, uh, Catholic Orthodoxy and so uh, and one of the uh, emphases that she had was educating women, providing uh, education for women. And so her uh, idea blossomed and the Sisters of Mercy uh, began kind of reaching out all over the world very quickly. It was a very fast growing um, order and, uh, and, and taking care of, of, of largely women in um, under uh, represented places. And so uh, for reasons I won't, you know, get into or probably couldn't if I wanted to, uh, they ended up a lot in Pennsylvania, and 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 so in uh, this college here, 
uh, was founded as a women's college uh, or women's school, first of all, and then it became a college. And uh, in sometime in, I think, the 1960s, it became co-ed. But, uh, so, but the roots are very much still um, spring from this, the, the core values of the Sisters of Mercy, and it's uh, mercy, justice, hospitality, and service. And so as far as the, the Catholicism of this college, I feel like it's much less, it's not dogmatic. You don't get a, uh, a sense of indoctrination here. Uh, and I mean, everyone has to take religion classes, but these are very broad religion classes. You could take class on, classes on Jewishness or Islam uh, to fulfill this religious requirement. Um, and so there's, there's less of a concern with making people Catholic than there is with living out Catholic values of how people should be generous to one another. Um, mm. and so, um, in term, it, this is, so in that way, it's, it's quite different than, <laughs> than, uh, than some of my experience, uh, experiences with evangelical, um, colleges in mm. that the re- religious mission is more, is not, I, I, I don't want to say that it's not central, but it's more, um, uh, it's in uh, implied. I don't know how to say it. it it's more kind of imminent rather than um, overt. And, and so I, I feel like uh, to answer your question, like how is it uh, like or unlike medieval uh, Oxford or Cardinal Newman's idea? I feel like a lot of it responds very well to what Cardinal Newman, if you read, you know, his larger writings, um, is getting at. And one thing he says, what an empire is in political history. Um, such is a university in the sphere of uh, philosophy and research. And you get, you get this sense that the university is a space that's both inside and outside of, of time and that it sort of carries these eternal values uh, that are less kind of rigidly defined but more, about, uh, but more inquisitive uh, in, in their nature. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm talking in circles here a bit. But um, Nathan earlier in his uh, history talked about how these early uh, monastic uh, things that became colleges uh, were related to but not identical to the church. And, and I mm-hmm. think that that's a really good way to describe what I'm perceiving um, as the, the Catholic mission of this particular college. Now, I'm sure that there are other colleges, like if you go to Georgetown, I'm sure that it, it, it may have a completely different uh, feel to it. But for this mm-hmm. one, it's very much uh, a kind of a service-oriented college, and in fact, because of where we are, a lot of our uh, students are very working class, and we are sort of pride ourselves on providing educate the, the service of education to people, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily the service of salvation or baptism or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I like your language of uh, of it of the I guess theological roots, the 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 the, the Catholic particularity being being imminent, um, mm. I think that sounds like a good a good description of uh, of of the way that um, the college would would express its uh, how its roots show. <laughs> the, yeah. the imminent imminence sounds good. Yeah, and and in fact, if you, I mean, the campus itself, we have one kind of large main building, which is very beautiful and very historic. I mean, it very much feels like you're in a cathedral. There are there's iconography everywhere, um, and 
and so it's not like the religion is absent. There are crucifixes in the classrooms and, and, and all of these things. Um, but it's mostly, that's just sort of background for the education. And that's almost as much indoctrination as you get. <laughs> it's very sort of symbolic in that way. And, and I think that that's hmm. um, something that's kind of um, been very um, fascinating for me being here. One of the things I'm also getting from your story is uh, a, a confirmation of something that I'd kind of suspected, which is that it might be something of a mistake for me to start off asking the question like, what is a Roman Catholic college or university like? Because it ends up being a narrative, in your case, about a particular order. Yes. Um, yeah. And I'm I guessing that most of them have something like that. <laughs> yeah, I suspect the Sisters of Mercy school looks far different than a, a Jesuit or a Franciscan school. I and mean, there's a Franciscan school right around the corner I have yet to visit. But um, uh, but yeah, and I think that that there's a lot of room for um, specificity within Catholic yeah. education. Interesting. Well, long ago we did an episode on Christian colleges, which was very pointedly evangelical and Protestant in its perspective because that was our background going into mm-hmm. it. So what general traits or goals or concerns um, shape the kinds of institutions that you and I were taught in and teach for? And do you see those characteristics in harmony or in tension with the characteristics that we're seeing of Roman Catholic higher education, I guess, historically or now? One thing that I would say, uh, kind of dovetailing with what Danny, Danny just said, is that there is no single kind of Catholic school any more than there is a single kind of Protestant school. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have Georgetown that Danny mentioned uh, that tends to be very different in its political leanings and its relationship with uh, with the with the hierarchy in Rome, for instance, than the Catholic University of America, which is also in Washington D.C but is a wildly different school. And likewise with, you know, every Catholic liberal arts school, every Catholic university is going to have its own story. And I think the same sort of thing is going on with Protestant schools. And I think this is a one good reason that it's helpful to pay attention to the diversity in Roman Catholic schools because, you know, just to pick some institutions with which I am familiar, uh, within my own tradition, you know, the Christian churches churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, you know, you have schools as diverse as, for instance, Butler University in Indianapolis, uh, which is historically disciples of Christ, but is, but operates largely as a secular university now. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got, you know, Bethany College, which is the home of the Stone Campbell historical archives, but again, basically functions as a private, secular, liberal arts college. Then on the other hand, you know, kind of at the other extreme, you have, you know, Bible colleges and, you know, they are dedicated almost exclusively to training preachers. Uh, And again, I mean, you know, it's interesting to look at their historical moment. They emerge out of this moment when a lot of the historically Protestant universities are either becoming secular or they're becoming more secular than the well, frankly, the more fundamentalist wing of the tradition would prefer to go, and it's no coincidence that a lot of these places are founded in the early 20th century, uh, when the modernist fundamentalist debates are at their he- at their height. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things that you know I like to pay attention to whenever I look at any Christian institution, and you know, turning my view for a moment here, you know, over towards Emmanuel College where I teach. Uh, once again, it's no coincidence that our founding date uh, is right there at the turn of the 20th century, uh, when the Azusa Street Revival is less than 15 years old. Uh, this is an institution that takes shape because a new phenomenon has occurred in American Protestantism, namely the Pentecostal moment. Uh, and whereas the Baptists had their schools and the Presbyterians theirs, Pentecostals hadn't been around long enough to have a college, so they needed one, and so here we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's and, and historically, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, politically the student body and the faculty here tends to be more right-wing than, say, you know, even my own alma mater of Milligan College, uh, but certainly more so than a place like Bethany College in West Virginia. Again, it's because the moment to which our institution responded at its founding was a moment where, you know, modernism uh, in all of its German glory was ascendant in the modern, in the American university and so institutions like this one rose up in response to that. Now, in our own sort of, you know, late modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, moment, metamodern, I guess Farmer would call it, um, <laughs> what you get is, you know, an ongoing discussion. And, you know, obviously I'm pulling that notion from McIntyre's book, After Virtue, right? Uh, the tradition of Emmanuel College is such that uh, I and my colleagues are part of an ongoing conversation about what it means to be a good Emmanuel College, uh, just as, you know, the members of any faculty of, a, of an institution that is still a vibrant and, you know, living community are going to be in an ongoing debate, sometimes a heated debate, about what it means to be a good one of them. So... Mm-hmm. D- Danny, I, I, I'm I'm rambling on here. What would you add to that? Um, so you know, having been at, at both kinds of schools now, I mean, although here very briefly, yeah. I think that um, there is particularly <laughs> as small. I mean, a lot of Christian colleges tend to be very small colleges, right? Yeah. And at this historical moment, small colleges are under uh, particular stresses in general, and, and mm-hmm. Christian colleges are part of that um, um, in terms of you know finances and whatnot. And, and if you mm-hmm. read inside higher ed, you see this every day, right? And so sure. um, <laughs> I feel like that kind of reaction then um, uh, demonstrates a tension between the kind of religious uh, motivation of education and the educational nature of education. Um, and, and so one thing that is, uh, gosh, is education an end into itself? And this is a very Newman, uh, Cardinal Newman idea, right? Uh, mm-hmm. that, that education is itself a good end. Um, or is it part of a larger program of something else, right? And, and so I think that if I'm to detect any kind of difference for when I can identify so far, I feel like uh, at a Catholic at the Catholic college that I'm experiencing, education as an end to itself is more dominant. <laughs> and I'm not mm-hmm. saying it doesn't exist in the other sphere, but in terms of emphasis, uh, this is what I'm trying to, to get at. I feel like in terms of f- emphasis, that is something that is um, uh, something I can 
I mean, maybe because the 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 indoctrination indoct that's a terrible term to use, but the uh, the the proselytization isn't there, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, and so in terms of the differences, like between like a conservative Catholic school versus a conservative evangelical school, that would be one place I would try to look and see how far they take Newman's idea of education as an end in of itself. Hmm. And and obviously there's great deal of nuance uh, in any particular institution and even between departments within institutions, right? And, and so uh, you have uh, a very kind of prickly, <laughs> complicated situation to, to look at there. But uh, if we're trying to parse out differences, I mean, that, that's one that I, I think is worth looking at. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of other ones historical, historically that um, I think are worth looking at. And you, you kind of approached at these, Nathan, when you kind of anchored the, especially the um, uh, conservative college, uh, conservative uh, evangelical Protestant colleges, um, the the moment of their founding, um, especially in the the first centuries or the first uh, decades of the of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. um, in the the college that I went to was founded as a largely as a training school for um, Christian ministers, preachers, mm-hmm. evangelists, missionaries, um, which shaped the character of that school, its, its personality fundamentally, even after they added majors that were not vocational church-related Christian ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that maybe one of the differences between a co- the college that I went to and a Mount Aloysius or something like that um, is that there were already very well-established and firmly demarcated routes for clergy educationally mm-hmm. um, in the Roman Catholic Church that weren't mm-hmm. necessarily the case in low church, especially non-denominational evangelical Protestantism, as the as as some of the, the the mainline denominations were embracing modernism and people like J. Gresham Mason were standing on the outside saying, come out from among them and be separate because the fire will fall on this Babylon. Um, as more, you know, the 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 traditional denominational institutions were no longer fitting the bill, so these other ones come in for the purpose of training clergy. But, you know, I imagine that that things didn't really change that much in terms of training routes for, um, for, uh, for Roman Catholic clergy, Roman Catholic clergy. So that, so a big impetus of founding the colleges isn't necessarily going to be mainly for the education of, mainly for the education of priests. Um, missionaries, catechists, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I'm thinking of the founding of Bryan College in Tennessee, named for a very famous guy, mm-hmm. uh, William Jennings Bryan. Um, and so some of the colleges that I've taught at, uh, there's still a debate, even sometimes between uh, the ministry department and the sciences department, about... Um, 
what kind of origin story you give for um, the earth and the life that's on it, right? And uh, sometimes the people, you know, which side the different departments suit up on is different, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on the school. Um, but I imagine that would look differently also, again, in a Catholic college because the church actually weighed in officially on that subject and said, you literal six-day creationists and you theistic evolutionists um, need to stop fighting each other. You're both ruled as inbounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so stop trying to throw the other out. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I can only imagine that that must make a difference in the way um, Genesis is taught in, in in Bible classes and human origins, biological origins are talked about in science classes in a Catholic institution versus an evangelical Protestant institution. Anyway, it's just kind of a speculation on my mind, but those seem like some specifics that would uh, be different. And, oh, and I think, I think ahead, you're David. right. I, the particular, I mean, I would just to go off the first thing you were talking about with the the origins of this college, like I said, was not, there was never a, a, we're training priests up here. There was never a seminary aspect to this. Right. And Mm so having that absent from the, the origin of the college absolutely must make a, a a difference in identity um, down the road. So absolutely. And and I just noticed in the way that you told the story, David, I mean, the, the direction of travel is exactly opposite, right? I mean, in the, in the tradition of the Catholic university, you know, Newman's idea is let's create something that is distinct from the seminaries that have been around since the council of Trent. Mm -hmm. Whereas with evangelicals, it's let's create something distinct from the universities. That's going to look something like a seminary, except Mm -hmm. for undergraduates instead of graduates. Right. Yeah. That is, yeah, that, that, that makes, that makes good sense. Well, Danny, as we've already uh, brought up, you're a, you're a Protestant. You're you're an evangelical teaching in a Roman Catholic school. So, not in terms of you know larger theoretical ideas, but in terms of boots on the ground, how familiar or unfamiliar is that setting uh, in comparison to, uh, well, I guess your last job? <laughs> well. Um, yeah, this is a, a complex question, <laughs> and uh, uh, there were a, a number of reasons that I, um, you know, accepted this job. Uh, there was the proximity to my where I'm from, and it's near family, and and, and many many other reasons. But um, money, one, uh, yeah, there was there was that. You know, um, <laughs> that that's under many many, right? Oh, there so, you go, there um, you go. <laughs> but uh, there was a. Um, uh, an unexpected sort of uh, kind of, I wasn't really thinking about this. So there was never any questions about faith uh, during the interview process. And so it's very, um, if you do what you do well, then you're welcome to do it here <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. there was not like a, uh, uh, a statement of uh, doctrinal um, assertion or anything like that. Um, and so that is one thing that, um, was odd to me, and I hadn't honestly didn't even think about it until like after I got here. But it, it, see, what you get here is a much more kind of diverse 
um, theological uh, spectrum uh, in terms of uh, people who teach here. There are, I assume, Catholics that teach here. Um, there are people who are agnostic. There are people from evangelical traditions. And, and it's very, um, so the unification is not around doctrine, um, from what I gather here, um, but it's rather around mission. And I feel like the the, the mercy mission, uh, the, the four values, the mercy, justice, hospitality, and service, if you, if you were to, uh, and this may be a job for the sectarian review at some point, um, to kind of parse out all of those terms and their implications, I think you could come up with a nice definition of the liberal arts. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and I feel like uh, that kind of uh, uh, focus is something that's uh, a bit, it's been interesting for me to experience. Now, um, now in terms of, I've never felt any kind of uh, you know, pressure on, as a as a Protestant uh, at this college, nobody seems to care, frankly, and, and so um, and but in that they do have every once in a while there'll be a, a liturgy that we'll go to and that kind of thing, and so it's been so interesting to me to actually kind of step into the Catholic world and, and see how um, services are conducted and and how the you know the liturgies look different than some of the the practices the faith practices that I kind of grew up with, and so. Um, to me, it's been uh, as much an education for myself <laughs> as anything I'm providing <laughs> for, for my students. And, and that's one it's been, it's been just lovely for that reason. I, I just feel like, um, it's given me so much to kind of ponder. Uh, uh, and so, but I suppose that if I had a different kind of, uh, mission for my teaching and that was someone that was much more, um, evangelical uh, in a kind of strictly defined sense, then I might feel more uncomfortable here. But um, it, for, as it is, as I am, uh, and as the college is, it, it's a good fit <laughs> for both for mm-hmm. my faith and uh, my vocation I th- in a lot of ways. And I come from just, uh, I don't know that I've, if I've ever mentioned this on uh, the show before, but I'm very kind of low uh, evangelical church tradition, this kind of uh, generically Wesleyan uh, I guess it's not generic. I grew up Nazarene. I guess it's not, <laughs> it's not entirely generic, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I grew up. Uh, uh, so uh, we were sort of always taught to believe in Catholicism as a form of idolatry, right? And, and so uh, all the things that I kind of took for granted as a, as a as a kid, I kind of gave up before I even got here. But now I absolutely see that there's a a kind of a low church idolatry as well it just doesn't take the form of statues particularly right and so it's been a it's been a liberal arts education for myself um and so to answer your question about familiar and unfamiliar it is both familiar and unfamiliar i guess freud would call that uncanny right uh and so i think that's that's kind of where i um how i would begin to answer that question the uncanny mountain yes (laughs) well you were and when we were prepping for this show um, Nathan brought up uh, j- just the idea that I mean you're you're I mean obviously you're not, you you know other Protestants who are working at this college, but there are also some uh, fairly famously Protestant scholars who are working mm-hmm. at fairly famously Catholic institutions. Um, you know, one particular gentleman uh, that that uh, came to mind who is very pronouncedly not a fan. Of 
Constantine and so forth. <laughs> and yet um, on on the payroll of the Pope. So um, how does how does you know can can you defend Hauerwas here? <laughs> yeah, first of all, to give a little background, before he was at uh, Duke Divinity School, which, where, of course, he, you know, became a, a nationally prominent figure, Stanley Hauerwas was on the theology faculty at Notre Dame University uh-huh. uh, in, you know, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And, you Is know, there a he, money trail, actually, from him to the Pope? I, I want to know that. Actually, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that, that I couldn't tell you, but, I mean, that, he tells some funny stories about his years at Notre Dame. Uh, one of them is that, you know, they had a theology faculty retreat and, you know, they kind of, you know, were, were going around the circle uh, and, you know, the faculty members were talking about how their own Roman Catholic faith influenced their work as an academic theologian. And then, you know, they got to a faculty member who was Presbyterian and he talked about his own Calvinist roots and how it affects his theology. And it came around to Hauerwas and he says, you know, I know that I should be talking about, you know, my Methodist roots, but, you know, as it turns out, I don't think I am a Methodist theologian. I went to Yale. (laughs) (laughs) So it's one of those things where, you know, being among the Catholics taught Hauerwas the value of having roots in a community that extends beyond your your grad school affiliations. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other famous figure who's, who's greatly influenced me, and he's actually also been on uh, Christian humanist profiles is Merrill Westfall, uh, who was a professor of philosophy for decades at Fordham University. Mm-hmm. And honestly, uh, until I heard him mention, I, th- I think on a homebrewed Christianity interview, that he's not Catholic, I assumed that he was <laughs> because, you know, I thought, oh, okay, you know, the most famous philosopher at Fordham University, obviously a Catholic. Well, he wasn't. And he, he tells a story about. And and I'll, and I'll tell his story next to Stan Hauerwas's because it, it kind of shows you, again, the range of experiences that Protestants have at these institutions. Um, you know, Westfall talked on that show about how, you know, it was an ongoing source of, of hurt feelings for him that, you know, he had served this university well for decades, and yet he knew every time that they gathered for liturgy he was not invited to that table. Uh, and he said, you know, it, it's one of the things that made him such a firm believer in an open table for the Eucharist uh, is, is precisely his status as an outsider. Now, the the dueling story with that is with Hauerwas is that he also is an advocate for an open table, but what he would do is when he went to liturgy at Notre Dame, he'd just get in line anyway and make the priest refuse him. <laughs> <laughs> so... Because that's how he rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of which, there should be an interview with Hauerwas up on uh, Profiles before too long, so y'all can look forward to that. Cool beans. Nice. I gotta say, um, this is something I, I struggle with on my own mind. Like, So, I, be, because Catholicism is not like pushed down people's throats here, and I would suspect that the majority of our students are not Catholic, mm-hmm. um, um, I... I feel like there has to be some institutional way to maintain that tradition. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, even as a non-Catholic, that I would like for the sisters or for leadership to be, I would like them to stay orthodoxly Catholic, <laughs> Catholic in an orthodox way. And, and I feel like uh, 
uh, I, I don't, and I don't know if I have a good reason for that or not, but I feel like the, it maintains the kind of broad mission, the, you know, the long-term historical mission of the school to have some sort of, uh, strict borders, even if I can't participate, you know, in, in, you know, the host and all that, uh, mm-hmm. during services, I, I would rather have that than just no center at all, I guess. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Am I am I just being a jerk? I, <laughs> no, 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 no. I I think that is a valid argument. That said, you know, I mean, I I definitely see the merit in Westfall and Hauerwas's objection, though. I mean, you know, if if it really is about an embodied community and being faithful together in a place, then yeah. to keep someone on the outside for thirty years strikes me as a failure of that hospitality. Uh. Hmm. That's, and so the you know, the liturgies that I've been to here, the, the the priest will say something like, you know, if you are not able to take, you know, if to commune here, then um, please, you know, use this time to pray because it's a more ecumenical variety of the Catholic uh, Eucharist or not. But uh, but that, that's that's one way. I didn't feel left out of the service, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I felt like there was a gesture, um, at least, to uh, include me, and so, um, yeah, and, and maybe it's that I'm just, you know, fresh-eyed and 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 still in the honeymoon period or whatever. <laughs> but, right, right. Like and, I would defer to traditional leadership, I guess, on some level. Yeah, and and I, and I realize it's not exactly the same situation, and you know, the analogy even might be a bit of a stretch, but I mean, I compare the way that you know my church. And, you know, I mean, I, although I'm right now attending a, a mainline Protestant Disciples of Christ Church, you know, for years and years I was part of the, you know, uh, largely conservative, largely evangelical Christian churches, Churches of Christ. If I had to imagine how those folks would welcome someone who began speaking in tongues in the middle of service, mm. I have to point yeah. to Emmanuel's hospitality towards me as a person who is part of a much more rationalist tradition mm-hmm. as a fine exemplar of hospitality compared to what my own tradition practices. Yes. And so I guess, I mean, I, I, I grant your point as, as philosophically and ethically valid, Danny, but I would also <laughs> say that there is something to be said for hospitality as a Christian virtue. Absolutely. That, you know, we, we can't just dismiss, and I'm not saying you're dismissing it, but I'd say that we need to live, I, I, I God, live in that tension. That sounds so cliche. <laughs> we, we we need to confront the fact that there is a contradiction in the room. We need to inhabit the tightness. <laughs> I, I'm not even touching that phrase, Grubbs. <laughs> oh Lord! Uh, and in, uh, in 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 my particular experience, that could be exactly what was happened. I, I think that mm-hmm. the way that the 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 Eucharist was was handled was doing exactly that. And so I, mm-hmm. I think we could be on the same page, basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as we don't pretend that there ain't a contradiction. That's yeah. always what makes me yeah. angry. <clears throat> yeah. Gets me barking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I think I'm, 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 I'm sympathetic to, to where the, the comment you made kind of at the beginning of this particular thread, Danny, which is... Um, uh, I'm I'm at a Baptist institution, and but I didn't have to be Baptist to work here. 
mm-hmm. at the same time, it is very firmly rooted in the tradition that it grows from. And I, and I respect that just the way when I was teaching at Central Christian College of Kansas, I respected the ways that that institution was growing out of its, uh, its free Methodist roots, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I appreciate the sense of rootedness even when it's not my rootedness. Yes, mm-hmm. that's that's sort of what I was. And you said it much better than I did. Yes, <laughs> you know. So you know, I, I can. You know, I, I I respect that, and I, I don't I don't feel like, you know, I didn't I didn't feel that Central Christian College had to stop being what it was to also be welcoming to me, mm-hmm. if the right sense. You know. Anyways, um, at HBU, uh, I have a number. Uh, this is Texas. <laughs> I have a number of, Ro- of Roman Catholic students, quite mm-hmm. quite a lot of them actually. Um, in fact, uh, I have Roman Catholic colleagues at this Baptist college. Um, so, are there? Do you have Roman Catholic students? Um, I guess probably the the biggest difference in terms of Christian um, identi- identification at uh, at Emmanuel. Would you would you see the plight of a Roman Catholic student at an evangelical Protestant institution as in some way analogous to a Protestant professor at a Roman Catholic institution? Well, first of all, it would depend on the institution. You know, like well, we've been yeah. kind of hammering over and over and over <laughs> again, right? I mean, you know, a liberal Protestant at Georgetown is probably going to be right at home, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, um, and I'm trying to think of, you know, um, shoot, uh I can't even think of the name. Christendom College is the one I was trying to think of. An evangelical would probably be quite uncomfortable there, right? Um, Now, we do have a a fair number of Catholics here at Emmanuel College, uh, and we also have a fair number of Baptist students who aren't aware that Catholicism is a historical phenomenon of Christianity, which makes (laughs) for some very awkward and, and, because I'm a bad person, amusing encounters uh, (laughs) when I teach these students. Because, you know, one student will, you know, say, well, you know, they're not Christian, they're Catholic. And then one of my Catholics will pipe up and say, perdón, <laughs> you know, uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's an amusing thing. And I mean, it, it's, it's actually, I mean, that's one of the places that I find rewarding here at Emmanuel College is that, you know, a lot of my, especially students in the honors program are Roman Catholic and, you know, having conversations with them about, you know, being sort of outsiders in this, you know, sort of hybrid Southern Baptist Pentecostal environment, you know, I tell them, you know, I am not by any stretch Roman Catholic, although I did have a, a listener recently say that I'm basically Catholic compared to Farmer and Grubbs. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, just got to kind of talk about, you know, okay, what is it that you think that hospitality would demand of a Christian institution? And, you know, in what ways are you experiencing that? In what ways are you not? And we can kind of share those stories. And, you know, it makes for some really good moments to connect with students on a, a level beyond the platonic dialogues that I'm teaching them. Although platonic dialogues are still awesome. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those things where I, I think that the nature of the required worship services here would definitely make a... Catholic student feel like more of an alien than, you know, the culture that Danny's describing at Mount Aloysius would make a Protestant student feel simply because it's not something that 
as far as I can tell, Danny, is required of the students. No. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, I think that's definitely a, a, a distinction, again, between some evangelical institutions and some Catholic institutions, because, again, mm-hmm. by no means are we dealing with anything short of a spectrum in both of those sets. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Danny, well, you know, no, we started with you, so David, no. cap it off. Uh, one thing, <laughs> one thing um, the, another context, though, is the, where Emmanuel is, is kind of bereft of Catholic communities. To oh, yeah, true enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's one thing. It's kind of difficult to put all of that hospitality on the institution um, because if there was a Catholic church up the street, I don't think it would be as big a deal, right? And uh-huh. so, uh, and so um, yeah, I think that there's there's that um, peculiarity, right. that particularity. Yeah, I think Athens is about the closest, isn't it? Uh-huh. I, is there one in Hartwell? I, I don't know. Uh, if you could yeah, I right. don't know yeah. that either. I'm, I'm yeah, so I seldom up that way. Yeah. But yeah. Well, I, I find it pretty... Uh, I, I actually find it kind of fun um, in the the uh, the text that we read in our our at least first semester comp class we we read some augustine um we we read you know we we encounter uh boethius which but you know but we 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 encounter augustine we i think there's some thomas aquinas in the reader mm-hmm. um you know there's there's people that um my Roman Catholic students at least know their names mm-hmm. so that, um, you know, when, when I talk about the great tradition, not all of them have grown up. Um, you know, a, a lot of them, you know, are, are, are more or less nominal or, or haven't been, you know, greatly engaged in the history of their own tradition. And, uh, in, 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 in some senses, I, I feel like in, uh, I, I'm, I'm being given the opportunity sometimes to to introduce young Catholics to their own treasures, <laughs> mm-hmm. which yeah. which I see which I see also as mine, mm-hmm. right? You know, because I, I I would say that you know I also am you know an heir farther down the line of of, of Augustine as well, mm-hmm. but but in this case you know to, to me it's uh, it's 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 kind of exciting, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's exciting in a different way when I introduce a you know a young Baptist to Augustine, and they're like, mm, Bishop, I don't know, um, <laughs> you know, and this and the same thing, you know, with you know our kids who who have you know no particular you know religious affiliation at all or or whatever, because it's a very it's a very diverse student student body. You know, mm-hmm. HBU is very welcoming to you know students from all different um, all different tracks, though. Um, we do, uh, faculty are, are all professing Christians, mm-hmm. but of, of different stripes. Right. Anyway, uh, it's, yeah. Um, well, I mean, that, that's a running joke that, with... that I tell my students here at Emmanuel is that, uh, you know, Emmanuel call, and by the way, listeners who are familiar with David Brooks, yes, I did flat plagiarize this from him, but, uh, mm-hmm. Emmanuel is the, uh, Pentecostal college where Southern Baptist students, come to learn from a Stone Campbell professor and we read Dante. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, one of the things that, uh, evangelical Protestants in the U S are, um, 
I guess, increasingly seeing themselves as or waking up to, depending on how you think about this, but increasingly seeing themselves as cultural outsiders. And that attitude shows up in the evangelical Protestant colleges and universities. Um, there's a, a kind of tension um, that, uh, you know, this the, the, the people I know who work at schools like mine feel. Um, how do... Catholic universe institutions, how do they think about the possibility or the reality of being on the margin of the culture? Oh gosh, this is obviously <laughs> too, too big for me. Right. But I'm going to, you know, I'll speak to what well, I can. When does that uh, ever slow us down, Danny? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> this is, yeah, even, even more than normal then. All right. So, um, but, uh, so, Yes, I think that one broad critique, I guess I share this with James Smith um, in, in the Desiring the Kingdom, which I'm sure I've talked about on this show before, but um, the, I think the wrong approach for Christian education, generically Christian education, is to have a finished product that is Christianity that you try and stick in people's brains and, and to combat anti-Christian sentiment in the culture. So I think the worst thing that we can do for Christian education is to just sort of come up with a, an antithesis to this kind of uh, imagined secular threat out there, okay? Um, and sometimes it's not that imagined, even if it's not imagined. But um, and, and so for Christian education to be thought of as an antidote to secularization, mm -hmm. I think is the wrong-headed approach to this kind of sense of marginalization. That's a lot of Latinate terms I'm using here. But um, <laughs> the, uh, um, and what he argues in that book, of course, is uh, a much more, something that's much more kind of broadly liberal education. Christian humanist, um, I think I would say it is. Uh, if, you, the, it's, if you will. Point <laughs> if <term>. you will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wink, wink, right? And so, um, but, uh, and I feel like uh, that kind of broader tradition that's that's like Newman's uh, education as sort of an end in of itself uh, is as a Christian activity um, is, is uh, a better solution to that marginalization and so um, and it, it, I could be this could be a fake quote or one that I'm misremembering but doesn't Luther say something about like cobblers putting crosses on shoes that's not what makes a Christian cobbler. Just making the best shoe possible is what makes a Christian cobbler, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, um, and so I feel in some ways that Roman Catholic institutions, as I perceive them, and of course, particularly through the lens that I'm in, which I'm inhabiting right now, um, is I think that they take that they're more inclined <laughs> to take that second approach. Oh, you know, just, I'm trying to really hedge. I don't know if it's coming across, probably to an <laughs> annoying degree for the listener. But um, um, <laughs> they can't see a bond beyond the hedges I'm creating. Um, but the, uh, uh, my experience is that seeing education as an end to itself is a way to sort of do good Christian work without worrying about whether people respect it or not. Right, and whether and, and so as long as you're doing um, good ethical Christian education, um, which means not necessarily teaching them Christian information, but um, doing education as a Christian activity, uh, I, I feel like uh, then you will be relevant, 
even on the margins. And, and really, how different is that than any great art? Any great art is usually from the margins of society. Uh, and so the margins are not the worst place to be <laughs> from an ethical mm-hmm. position, right? And an ethical perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel like uh, if I had to sort of create a dichotomy, um, I, would, uh, I, I would situate it there. Mm-hmm. Nathan? Yeah, I think honestly this is one of the things that people underplay when they talk about sort of evangelical rage more generally, uh, is that, you know, I mean, basically from the Scopes monkey trial up until Ronald Reagan, evangelicals were, I mean, a stereotype. They were a punchline. You know, they were outsiders, right? I mean, the mainline Protestants, right, uh, were the dominant culture in America, And then there was this, you know, in my mind, brief historical moment from roughly 1980 to 2008 where all of a sudden they were the queens and kings of the world. And, you know, since 2008 they've been a punchline again. And, you know, I I think that certainly that affects college culture. I mean, I know that, you know, for instance, you know, today's convocation service that I just came from before recording this, the speaker who was very good it was actually uh, Sean McDowell Josh McDowell's son which made me very apprehensive going in but his convo was really quite good um, <laughs> you know I mean but no fewer than three times he referred to the changes in the culture and you know the the sort of bunker mentality that we're going to have to take up so I, I think that that's certainly part of evangelical culture in a different way from where Catholics exist, which is to say they are, you know, because they are so predominantly, and I realize not universally, Irish and Mexican and Italian immigrants into an Anglo-Saxon culture, there is a much more long-running sense of being an outsider culture. So it becomes, like Danny talked about, more of a background background radiation phenomenon rather than an immediate crisis mentality. Uh, so, I mean, I think that both kinds of institutions, and again, there's spectrums on both sides, uh, have the potential to have that, you know, marginal identity politics edge to what they do. Uh, but I think simply because of the historical scale, because we're talking about centuries in one case and decades in the other, they're going to be two very different kinds of marginal culture phenomena. Uh, David, what what would you add to all that? I think that makes sense. Just pointing out that um, evangelicals have had a few decades of forgetting what it was like Mm -hmm. to be on the edge. Um, And so so that uh, to a number of, you know, a number of people that, you know, a lot of people and a lot of people that I know and I love dearly it feels like the end of the world, and how can that not be a sign of coming apocalypse? Mm-hmm. But which, fact, which, by it, the way, is why we should teach history at Christian colleges. Right. But sorry, <laughs> sorry, but, off but my soapbox. Go grubs, go. <laughs> yeah, but but in fact, it's the the ascendancy of evangelicalism in um, in the U.S. politically and culturally was always tenuous. And it's and it's been within the lifetimes of our own parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it hasn't. It's not as if 
this thing that was stable forever. It's not like Rome getting sacked in 410. <laughs> All right, that's rocking the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this this is not that. This is this is the Rome. This is this is the Goths eventually cycling down to North Africa in, you know, you know, the 460s. This is not 410. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like we always knew the Goths were coming. Um but at the same time, even that's even that's more apocalyptic than than I than I really want to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas it's a, it's less goths in Rome, more goths in the shopping mall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where, whereas um, in the U.S., I don't think Catholics have ever quite been permitted by anyone else to forget that they're kind of weird, mm-hmm. not, and not like the rest of us. They've got big families. And their priest dresses different, and he doesn't have a wife, and mm-hmm. you know, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. There's always yeah. these markers of difference that have never gone away. Yeah, and I mean, after a couple centuries of being hated because they are Italian and Irish and Mexican, again, you had this brief blip, and then you know now they're hated because they are not liberal. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, I, I, I get, I guess in some, in, in some ways the, 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 the Roman Catholics might be saying to, to the evangelical Protestants, don't panic guys. Welcome to the margins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice here. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we won't necessarily, it gets better, but you learn to live with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, any, any final thoughts? I think we've, uh, we've come to an interesting place in this conversation. About the only thing that I'd add to what we've said here, and I, and I think I agree this is a this has been a good conversation, is that one of the things about being Christian in America in 2015 is that on the Protestant side, denominationalism has had its day. The mainline Protestant phenomenon was 51% of the population 50 years ago, and now it's down to, what, 15, 20% of the population. Um... Uh, Whereas, you know, sort of a generic evangelicalism, like Danny described it earlier, is ascendant, although it's now sharing oxygen with the sort of post-religious, you know, uh, like Europe but 70 years late phenomenon that we see in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that having Catholics as our neighbors is really handy in a moment like this, precisely because they have deep historical roots uh, their memories of being Christian in America go deeper than what Grandma did, and mm-hmm. you know, for that reason, you know, I think that that conversation with Catholics, service alongside Catholics, and and, and I'm gonna concede to Danny here, not demands that Catholics let us in to be generically Christian, but also not letting Catholics forget that we're not invited to their table, is something that can be a creative difficulty mm-hmm. in being Christian in America that I can that I think can be very, very fruitful. Danny, mm-hmm. what do you got? Well, I'd like to kind of follow up with the idea of hospitality just a little more. Um, the This year, we've kind of tried to reach out and, and recruit students from the Middle East. And so we, I think we have several from Saudi Arabia and, mm-hmm. and some Muslim students from Bangladesh as well. And, um, and so one of the things that 
the college did was to uh, take a cl- former classroom and kind of reserve it as a, Islam, a Muslim prayer room. Um, and there are sort of carpets on the floor and um, for people to practice their faith um, here, right? And, and so, um, and, and I'm in recording this in the library right now. I'm in the middle of office hours, I keep looking. Nobody's waiting for me, so it's okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> in the basement of the library, there's, <laughs> there's this uh, ecumenical uh, reading room. And, and so mm-hmm. local pastors, uh, Catholic, Protestant, uh, donate uh, reading materials to this uh, ever-growing ecumenical library. And I think that to follow up sort of what Nathan said is to kind of both um, – you know, acknowledge and revel in the difference <laughs> uh, between uh, Catholics and Protestants, I think is um, an entirely Christian and, and productive thing to do. Like, you know, I, like, honestly, I can't, I can imagine, I can't imagine it at certain colleges. Um, I, I won't name any by name, but certain evangelical colleges opening a Muslim prayer room <laughs> in the, in the mm-hmm. main building. Right. Uh, and, oh, you're and right. So, <laughs> and so, like uh, that is something that's entirely alien, and it could seem as be seen as somewhat scary to someone from a, an evangelical, uh, with an evangelical worldview. And, and so, uh, I think that that's something that's utterly different than than what an evangelical uh, would how how an evangelical would approach the world. But it, it's also um, worth kind of taking partnership with, uh, even if, even if there's a disagreement uh, about the, the practice of Christianity, um, I think that having that relationship is, uh, is an important one. And I'm really enjoying kind of living that out on a day-to-day basis here. Uh, this has been, that's been one of the more rewarding aspects of this job, uh, so far. And so, um, I think that, uh, um, that's one of the things I'm, I, it's always in the front of my mind as I move forward here, I think. Cool. Well, one of the things that I'm taking away from this is just sort of recognizing the degree to which um, every college has its own narrative. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, I- any any more than I can sit where I'm sitting and, and make great sweeping statements about Baptist education or Protestant education, Lordy, um, you know, in, in the same way, you know, I, Catholic institutions, you know, look at them, you know, individually, look at their individual narrative, um, but also caring about it. Um, I think there's, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know if the, I, I don't know if this is exactly true, but you know, when I go to, you know, I went to Mount Aloysius's website and the sisters of, you know, sisters of mercy, um, there seems to be more interest in those roots than I do in some other, you know, Christian colleges, Protestant Christian colleges that I've looked at their websites. Um, they're, they're very interested in saying that, you know, this is a, a Christian education or, you know, we're, we're here for Christian values, but the kind of the speci- the rooted specificity of, um, the tradition of the founders of the college, I think it seemed more important on that on that website than the other, um, you know, that's just websites, but then I think that's symbolic in some ways. Um, anyway, I, I like the, 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 the sense of awareness of, of, of where the, where the college connects into its history and not pretending that it is, that it is that generic thing. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and also learning, 
um, uh, learn, learning from. Uh, I do think there's, uh, as we, you know, as 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 it becomes more and more, uh, I think probably more and more difficult for institutions like the one I'm at to function in a co- in a in a co- culture that increasingly thinks of it as weird. Um, it's going to have to increasingly learn how to function in that situation. And so learning from learning from our Catholic neighbors who are just kind of used to that by now, um, you know, listen to Jim Gaffigan joking about, you know, the way people talk about his enormous family and so forth. Um, you know, just kind of reminds me, oh, yeah, you can you can live through that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can be mocked and we'll and, and that will be OK. And, and watch Daredevil and you realize you could become a superhero based on this. Right. So that's true. It's true. <laughs> I do yeah. love that series. <laughs> His Catholicism is a, a central part of that character, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and, and and it's funny because I watch my uh, atheist friends post about that on Netflix, and they're just utterly baffled. It's like, why does he keep going in there and keep getting beaten up? Is he just that stupid? And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you got you guys are definitely Protestant atheists. <laughs> awesome. Well, what are what's up for next week? Well, next week we're going to take on a uh, single text, as Michael Farmer likes to call him. We're going to be talking about the tragical history of Dr. Faustus. Huzzah! And, oh, and because it's going to be the tragical history of Dr. Faustus Marlowe's version? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. okay. Oh, I'm not going to have you read all of Goethe, dear heavens, no. <laughs> okay. Oh, but, but that does mean we are going to get to watch an evil wizard poke the Pope. So, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Preemptive, preemptive <laughs> apologies, Catholic listeners who thought we were going to be nice now. All right. Well, I look forward to um, things getting dark and wicked next week. Uh, hope you do as well, dear listeners. If you want to send us any feedback, uh, you can post them on the show notes for our blog at christianhumanist.org when those show notes do post. You can send us emails at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post comments to our Facebook page. You can also give us ratings on iTunes uh, if you like us. If you don't like us, just keep that to yourself. <laughs> uh, Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amberly Copeland is our editor for this show. Well, this is the end of the episode, so I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Danny Anderson and Nathan Gilmore, leaving you with wise counsel from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>